is looking at you. Hello and welcome to the Here's Looking at You podcast, a podcast where we explore the intersections of gender, sexuality and performance. I'm Dr Ellen Wright and I'm a lecturer in cinema and television history who specialises in the study of Hollywood in the first half of the 20th century and the representation of gender and sexuality therein. Today's podcast, podcast number nine, is titled I'll Show Them, I'll Record Everything, in reference to a quote from the 2003 melodrama The Room. Today's conversation is about this film and its broader context, and I'm thrilled to be having it with Dr. Richard McCulloch, lecturer in film and cultural studies at the University of Huddersfield. As I've already mentioned in a blog on the Here's Looking at You website, I'm fascinated by the the room phenomenon, not just because of James Franco's recent film and not just because I teach cult film and every year I run a participatory the room screening for the students, but because performance is so key to this phenomenon. As I've already mentioned in my blog, the importance of performance when considering the room doesn't end with the poor performances offered within the film itself, and nor is Franco's performance of Wizzo the final performative consideration at play here. These are certainly fascinating elements to consider, and I want to unpack them a little bit with Richard in our conversation. But the final point of interest for me, having now run these participatory screenings for the last three years, is the performances that occur within the auditorium. The performance of fandom, the performance of irony, and the expressions of or attempts at cultural capital, both by the audience, but also ultimately by Wizzo, that intrigue me so much here. As a result, Richard, who's a huge fan of The Room and who's undertaken audience research on The Room and its fans and on the Prince Charles Cinema in London, which is the UK home of participatory screenings of this cult classic, was a clear choice for me to have a conversation with here. So let's dive right in. Hello, Richard. I'm going to open in what is probably a really obvious way by saying, Oh, hi, Richard. Uh, thanks for being part of the Here's Looking at You podcast. So I wondered, I've got you on here for a number of reasons, but I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your research. Sure. Um, well, yeah, thanks very much for having me, Alan. Um, so I'm a lecturer in film and cultural studies at the University of Huddersfield. Um, and I guess the, the emphasis would very much be on the, the cultural studies side of things, um, because very, very broadly, I guess I'm interested um, I am very interested in films, obviously, but I'm more interested in what people do with films, um, the ways in which people enjoy them, interpret them, evaluate them, um, and the various ways in which watching films, talking about them, and making sense of them is kind of intertwined with people's everyday lives, really. Mm. Um, so broadly speaking, when people ask me what my research is on, I would call myself an audience studies researcher. I do audiences, reception, fandom, fan studies, things like that. Mm. Um, most relevantly for this podcast, um, I've done quite a lot of work on what's sometimes called participatory screenings or live cinema. Um, so events in the cinema. So rather than just going and sitting in silence, um, events that are either you know movie marathons, some of which maybe double bills or all night kind of marathons and things like that. Um, I've done a lot of research at the Prince Charles Cinema in London, which does things like yeah, marathons, quizzes, uh, Q&As with directors, things like that. Um, and most interestingly for me, uh, sing-alongs and quote-along screenings. Um, any event really where the, where the audience is, is actively encouraged to be part of the experience in some way. Um, 
And so I guess within that, I'm interested in questions of taste and pleasure. So why do people enjoy these things or not enjoy them in some cases? Um, how do they express that enjoyment? Um, questions of performance. So how do people behave when they're there and why? Um, and also the social side of things. So who do we watch with and why do we watch with those people? And how does watching in a very particular context impact on those other things about the you know, pleasure and interpretation and things like that? Thank you. Right. Well, I've asked you on here today um, because I wanted to have a little bit of a chat about uh, The Room uh, and also about the very recent James Franco biopic uh, of the gentleman who made The Room, the disaster artist, and a little bit about this idea of performance that you've already articulated and interested in, that idea of sort of participation. Um, so I wonder if you might be able to give our listeners a little bit of an idea about what makes the screenings of The Room uh, so very special and what it was that prompted you to conduct research into this particular audience? I think anyone who's, who knows anything about The Room will know that it's got a bit of a reputation that precedes it. It's very difficult to find out about this room without knowing about the reputation as well. Um, and the reputation that it's associated with is being so bad, it's good. Um, it's often referred to as the Citizen Kane of bad movies or the best worst movie ever made or, you know, things like that. Um, and, and really my fascination with it stemmed from there that, that, you know, when I first discovered it, I was overwhelmed by, yeah, how bad it is, but also how that badness kind of some, sometimes somehow becomes pleasurable as well. Yeah. Um, so for anyone who's not seen it, it I, you know, the, it's the acting is kind of wavers between being completely over the top or stripped of all emotion. Um, the characters and their dialogue in it, kind of they speak and act as though they're written by someone who's never had a conversation with a human being in their life. <laughs> um, it's full of non sequiturs, people talking about clients at a bank and then going, oh, anyway, how is your sex life? Um, the editing makes no sense. Uh, is an inability to kind of keep time and basic things like that. You know, it will be daytime and then it's nighttime and daytime again and it's supposed to be the same day and stuff like that. Um, there are amazing kind of entire subplots uh, involving drug dealers and breast cancer and things like this, which are introduced in one scene and then never mentioned again. Uh, <laughs> it, it just, it, it's just a really fascinating film that kind of, it seems to basically break every rule that we think about, you know, what makes a good film and how a film's usually made. Mm. It seems to break that. So I think in some respects it's, it's a fascinating text in its own right yeah. um, and I think trying to spot all the bad things in it yeah. and unpick the many many different ways in which it is yeah. quote unquote bad um, it's almost like a game isn't it it's like I spy or something yeah absolutely um, and it, it really re rewards kind of in-depth engagement it's one of those things where you know the, often you might think the more you watch something the better you understand it in, with this film it kind of seems to be the opposite yeah. the more you watch and the more you read about it you just have more questions and you're like yeah. but why why is this happening and oh there's that thing that I've never mentioned n noticed before I must have seen the film about I don't know 30 times or something oh you poor thing <laughs> the last, but I get a lot of pleasure from it <laughs> but the last time I watched it I spotted something that I'd never seen before really yeah like a character like picking his nose at this corner of the screen nice um <laughs> So, so yeah, so, so as a film on its own, it's got a lot going for it. Yeah. Um, but one of the questions that quite quickly emerged for me in thinking about this academically was why does that badness become pleasurable? Yeah. Why, why, 
why do people love this thing that seems to go against mm. all these other? It's not like there's just one way of making a good film or one way of enjoying a film, but this seems to go against all of those things. Mm. Um, so I think in, in trying to think through that question of why has it become a big cult hit, um, the obvious place to turn is to the audience, is to speak mm. to the people who, who are watching it and, and, well, why do you watch it? How did you discover it? Um, mm. Which is precisely what you did, I guess, isn't that, it? That is what I ended up doing, yeah. Mm. So I attended several screenings um, in different places, mainly at the Prince, Prince Charles, but um, yeah. I happened to be living at Cambridge at the time and ended up, uh, there was like a, one of the student societies at Cambridge University was, was putting on a, a screening of the film. Right. So I thought, oh, I'll go down to that and just use that as a kind of pilot study and see what that's, that'll give me some ideas and I'll go and do the proper study at the Prince Charles. Yeah. Um, and I ended up doing participant observation and some interviews um, yeah. by questionnaires of people that I met there. And actually the screenings at Cambridge were so different to the ones that I'd been to at the Prince Charles. Right. That, that straight away I kind of thought, well, well what's going on here? Because the closest, the, the easiest, to, I, I guess I'll, I'll backtrack slightly before yeah. going back to my study. So the, one of the reasons why this film has become so famous is because of its audiences and the ways in which audiences react with it. Yeah. And the closest point of comparison for someone who's never heard of The Room or its audiences is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so, you know, people, they don't just go and sit there and enjoy it and laugh at it. They go and they dress up, they take props with them, which they use at very particular moments. Uh, most famously, throwing plastic cutlery at the screens. Um, yeah, throwing American footballs around, which is you know something that the characters do in the screen. Sometimes they run up and down the aisles, um, and they heckle and talk back to the characters on screen. They shout insults at them, show questions at them, similar to the kind of what's called the shadow cast of Rocky Horror. Yeah, same kind of thing. Um, but what really fascinated me about when I went through my research was that that the Prince Charles screenings this big cinema in London, which has become quite famous mm. uh, for showing the room, was really, really different to the kind of behaviour that I witnessed at this Cambridge kind of film society screen. Yeah. Um, to the extent where I was like, well, what, this is the same film that they're watching. Yeah. Yeah, and some of the heckles are the same. Right. Some of the jokes are the same, and sometimes they're laughing in the same places. Yeah. But other times it's completely different, and there yeah. are some... There are some things, some chants and rituals, if we want to call them those, that appear in one screening and not the other. Right. Um, and actually, I ended up going to a few screenings at the Prince Charles and realised that even though we might think of this as like the ultimate place where you know the super fans kind of go to experience this film, yeah, those screenings were, were subtly different in interesting ways as well. The, and, and that for me became one of the pleasures that. So there's an improvisation element then, almost. And absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that it's not quite the same every time, that there are kind of like a stock group of chants and rituals and heckles and yep. things people do, but there's also an element of that has to be kind of reconciled with, well, who is there? Mm. How, how well do they know the film? Um, you know, how willing to participate are they? Yeah. And, and what is the mood, the general mood and the atmosphere like in, in the room as a whole? Um, yeah. Because, because sometimes someone could shout something out, they might know it might be a recognised heckle that another screening would have got a lot of laughs. Yeah. At another screening, if no one else knows what they're referring to, yeah. then they could be met with silence. And yeah. then that person's going to feel a bit like, oh God, I'm not yeah. going to shout anything else out for the rest of the film. But I guess that's the joy of sort of, this is 
you know the joy of one of these participant sort of events where there's a there's a live element here isn't there there's always going to be that risk that you take you know do I do this do I improvise do I not will this pay off will it not will it uh, me cultural capital amongst my peers will it not you know it's a really interesting one isn't it um if you don't mind me sort of uh, sort of interjecting here this really does make me think about the participant screenings that I run I'm quite um I'm quite concerned when I do them I, I love them I enjoy them so much and the students clearly get so much from them but I do prompt my students in all sorts of ways so I give them a cheat sheet with the the sort of the most well-known call outs summarized on it just like one side of A4 they get spoons I give them a few hundred spoons and they just dive into this big bag and pull out each they have a big handful of spoons I've got a couple of inflatable American footballs I sit at the front so that they feel like they're not being watched but equally in sitting at the front they see my behavior so I prompt them in that way um, I can't sit quietly because I feel like if they're going to sit, you know, if they're going to sit quietly and they watch me, that might prompt them to watch quietly as well. So in all three instances now, because I've done this for three years on the trot now, I've been the first person to shout out. I've done the first shout out. And then from there on, they've known that they're OK, that they can, you know, they can join in and what have you. And they've ran with it then and they've done all manner of bizarre things. But it does it does bother me in a way because I feel like. I'm leading them you know I'm sort of shaping the experience um so it's not entirely you know spontaneous it's not entirely improvised because I've you know <clears throat> they've got that cheat sheet but also as well prior to the screening they have a lecture um where I talk to them a little bit about experiences at the Prince Charles so there is an element there of their acting being the Prince Charles audience or their acting being another audience do you know what I mean so it's not it's, it's, you know, it certainly isn't anywhere in the realms of, you know, sort of the kind of work that you do. I couldn't observe this in any uh, in any serious way because I've shaped the scenario so massively, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I completely understand. That. And I've had very similar experiences mm. when teaching this film as well. And, you mm. know, kind of not being sure how much do I tell them in advance yeah. and stuff like that. And I've tried different ways and yeah. they have different results. Yeah. Um, I think my favourite approach has been when I've not told them anything at all. Mm, yeah. Um, I, I used to teach at Middlesex and I, I, I taught it there and um, I deliberately didn't tell them anything. I said, I'll, I'll give you a lecture, I'll talk to you about it afterwards, but I, for now I just... Oh, that's a nice technique. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and also this was a few years ago, so most of them, I don't think anyone had actually heard of it or maybe one or two had yeah. heard of it, but no one had seen it. It's the thing, it's so hard now, isn't it? What with the disaster artists, I mean, all the all my students, every single one of the students knew about the film. Admittedly, I told them in the first week that we were going to do a participatory screening, but they knew about the disaster artists, so they knew what was, you know, what I was letting them in for. <laughs> Uh, I guess a, a big part of that as well, though the the enjoyment of teaching that was they were they were so excited. I mean that they've always there's always been a buzz about the screening, but this year in particular, the students it was it was like fever pitch. It was they were so excited. It was so much fun that you know that when we actually got going. It was like, I don't know, setting fireworks off or something in the auditorium. You know, they, they were just went wild. They, they were doing the stuff with the football, running in the aisles and what have you. Although I had said to them, you know, don't climb on the seats. Please don't throw things at the screen. We have to come back here to teach next year, you know. But, yeah, you know, it, 
I, you know, I, find, I still find it interesting, but I'm fully aware that I'm obviously um, I'm creating massive problems as well. That you know, you must you know, when you see people sort of when I don't know if you saw me put something about this on social media, you must think, yeah, that's interesting, but it's really problematic as well. <laughs> I'd be hesitant to call any version of the room authentic or yeah. inauthentic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because because as I said, like even in a space where we might consider it to be the most authentic space, like the Prince Charles, which yeah. is the, the space in the UK, which is yeah. known as the home of the room. Um, you know, when, when Tommy Wiseau and Greg Cicero come to the UK, that's where they go and yeah. that's where they do their, their Q&A. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, all of those screenings are very different as well. And there'll be a very different balance. Of, yeah. You know, people will know different, le have different levels of knowledge and, in, and pre-engagement pre with the film. Yeah. Um, I don't think there is any one right way. Uh, I mean, one of the things in my research that I asked the people who I spoke to was, was how did you first discover this film? Oh, right, okay, yeah. And, and one of the things that came out of that was that actually pretty much all of them saw, they knew that it was bad before they watched it. So, yeah. So no one, there were, there were two people out of about 35 people that I interviewed who had what we might call um, a, a, a blank slate kind of going in. Yeah. Um, but they were very unusual. Yeah. They were the exceptions rather than the norm. Um, so, so one person who, um, who was actually the person who introduced me to the film, he, his friend basically sat him down and just said, all he said was, this film is incredible. <laughs> right, yeah. After about five minutes, my friend said, he's like, you know, they sort of watched it in the eye and sort of turned to his friends as if to look at, like, are you kidding? And, and, yeah. and his friend just looks at him and, like, why? And I went, I know, right? And then they were, you know, laughing. Yeah. The sort of thing. Um, another person who, yeah. who, who, who was, who deliberately doesn't like to know any information about a film before they oh, go. Oh, good. Or she yeah. was the title, The Room. The group of friends that she went to see it with were film, they were kind of cinephiles. So right. they thought it was going to be some kind of, like, art house film yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but for her, she was partly guided by the fact that she got there and was surrounded by all these people who were clearly really excited. And she said the, the she described the atmosphere as said it was more like a football crowd. Yeah. Like, like everyone was really excited, you know, like yeah. fireworks going off in the center. Yeah. And that's what she described. And so she was like, well, of course, encountering that, she knew that it wasn't going to be some yeah. serious drama. Yeah. So 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 that kind of context set some um, expectations yeah. for her as well. Well, that's, that's really interesting, actually, because um, the first time I saw it, um, my partner, he had said to me about watching it, um, and I'd been given a cop of it, so I put it on, and he said, I'm, I'm not going to watch this with you. Um, I've got things to do in the other room. I'll just leave you to it, because he knew what was going to happen. So I, I started watching it, and I, and I was about 10 minutes in, and I'm thinking what the hell is going on this this is this this is making me hurt this is because I, I i'm the um you know you know the office I, I can't handle the office the office makes me hurt um i i i find myself grabbing onto things burying my face in cushions you know, i can't handle that sort of humor and to me this is on that sort of scale of you know it's just painful the rest of the film was essentially I had to keep stopping the DVD at 50 minute intervals 
going and having a walk, go around the house, make a cup of tea, come back to try and watch some more of it, because I, I just I couldn't watch it. The sex scenes, just yeah. horrific, actually yeah. horrific. Um, so I watched the whole thing. I, by the end of the thing, I was angry with it. It made me annoyed because it was just like, how can you be so inept? Um, so, yeah, I, I came to it, I don't know, I came to it quite straight. Well, incredibly straight, actually. I had no idea. Yeah. And I can see why I have had students say to me before, even though they know the sort of thing they're going to get, they'll come up to me, they'll sort of sidle along the aisle in the cinema and whisper in my ear, got to go home now I can't take any more <laughs> they just had enough it's like even with all the things to do yeah. they can't bear it it's like a feat of endurance that they just they can't get through you know um so yeah I, I don't know whether that makes me uh well I think that probably makes me achingly uncool that I had no idea of what it was about but yeah um I don't think I've had an experience like it before or since you know <laughs> so did the did you happen to speak to the people was it you know when you sort of interviewed these two people and they said they'd not had experienced this film before did you interview them after they'd seen it for the first time or did you see interview them before they were about to go in or in most cases these were people who i uh, spoke to and got contact information right. either be before or immediately after mm. when they were there but, uh, but because I wanted to give them time to kind of reflect on their answers and, you know, yeah. people are at the right. for a night out, yeah. you don't want to sit them down for half an hour and go, can you talk to me? So so it was, it was an online questionnaire, which I sent them afterwards, basically. Okay. Um, but, but, but the one who introduced me to it, he'd already seen it quite a few times himself before uh, he introduced me to it. Um, so, yeah, actually, my, my first experience was pretty similar to your first experience in that uh, I felt very conflicted about it. I struggled to get through it in places. There were definitely times when I was close to turning it off because it was so bad. Um, but there was just about enough in there that I was laughing at in it because <laughs> yeah. it was so bad yeah. that it kept me going. And, and also, I, I kind of trusted the friend who had recommended it to me. I could see why he had recommended it to me, and I wanted to be able to talk to him about it. So there was that... I guess, social motivation to kind of stick with it. So there was an element there of almost, would we, like a bonding experience then with your friends, sort of a thing to be able to talk about? Or... Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, th I think that's that's one of the the key uh, pleasures of this film, mm. kind of sharing it with other people, Yeah. Um, is, is that it reinforces those existing kind of friendships and social bonds. Yeah, absolutely. Um, not necessarily even with, like, close friends. They might, you know... Like you said, with, with students and things, people who, you know, you might spend a lot of time with in class, but I think some of the times I've felt closest to my students was when we've been discussing this film. Yeah, um, yeah, because yeah. Because we're all kind of engaged in this shared process of, oh, my God, what is this? <laughs> um, and that, that in itself, we, we're all on the same side in that sense. Like yeah. We might not all have exactly the same take on it, but it's all strongly in your work on on this phenomenon um that idea you know that sort of community's idea and the way that the communities function and, and and use this in a really interesting way 
Um, that seems to be something that my students, when we, because we talk about your work in on our module, is the one of the things that the students sort of pick up and run with, you know, in quite a, a positive way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've recently, just in the last few days, booked to go to the Prince Charles when Tommy and uh, Greg um, are at the Prince Charles, and I'm taking my friend who's never seen the room before. Um, he knows what to expect though, uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, a similar, I guess a similar sort of experience to the thing that you're, you know, you're sort of observing in your friends, that idea of, oh, I get to introduce them into this, you know, this is yeah. really, really good fun, you know, so yeah, I'm not sure what he'll make of it, but. <laughs> I, I do usually, my, you know, I think different strokes for different folks yeah. and all that, but I, I usually do um, recommend that people watch it with a group of friends first before yeah. like because I think the Prince Charles is quite a difficult place to watch it for the first time. Oh I've not thought of that. Yeah, yeah. It is very loud and very raucous and you do actually miss a lot of the funniest facts. So so for example, one of the most famous bits in the film uh, is the you're tearing me apart. <laughs> um, which which is very funny and you know the delivery is like you're tearing me apart <laughs> kind of amazing um, you know the terrible tribute to James Dean that always gets a big laugh and usually a round of applause but in the film immediately after he says that he pushes Lisa onto the couch and then says do you understand life <laughs> and, and I and you've nailed it <laughs> you can't hear that in the Prince Charles because people are clapping over it yeah and I always feel that that's a bit of a shame because, uh, you know, people spend so much time laughing, you you miss a lot of the weird little idiosyncrasies yeah. which make it so special, I think. So, yeah. so I, when, when I introduce people to it, I usually say, watch it with a group of, you know, maybe like five or six sort of, uh, you know, like-minded friends. Doesn't yeah. matter if they've seen it or not, but, you know, a, a, rel a small enough group that it's not talking all the way through it. Um, and, and then you can get the experience of... of at the Prince Charles. Right, well, <clears throat> I will move on then um, to the possibly more recent context of the uh, the disaster artist, uh, James Franco's film about the making of The Room. Um, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on the film's attitude to its subject, on the performances and the construction, or even the exploitation of this film, the way it's been promoted. Was there anything that sort of stood out to you presumably you've been and, and seen this in the cinema i can imagine yeah i, I was i was able to um i, I have a, a very a toddler at home so i don't get to see sort of cinema as often as i would like but yeah. I, I did manage to go and see this one um yeah i was really i was really pleased with it um mm. generally I, I really enjoyed the film i think it's very very entertaining um i think going in my main concern was that it would be a little bit nasty about wizzo yeah um i was because he's, he's quite, anyone who's seen him in interviews or watched the film or, or, or read anything about the film really will know that he's, he's quite easy to laugh at in the sense that he's, yeah. he's very, very eccentric, he's very unusual and he's very mysterious and, yeah. you know, lots of questions about his personal life and his background and mm. people answer and all this kind of stuff, which, yeah. which makes it kind of fascinating. Just feeds the mystery even further, doesn't it? <laughs> Who is this guy and how has he made the film and all that kind of thing. Um, but I was... One of the things that, both from my own fandom of the film and, and my research, which made it clear that lots of people felt the same way, is that people, as, as bad as this film is, on any objective scale, 
people genuinely love it. Yes. Yeah. And and are really pleased that it exists, and then in many cases enjoy it and like it much more than any legitimately quote unquote good film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was a little bit concerned going in that it would be too, you know, too much laughter at the expense of look at this weird guy, look yeah. how terrible this film is, ah, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. And I was really pleased that it isn't like that, and it, mm. that it was actually it's clearly made by. I think it's very clear from the way that James Franco speaks about Wizzo and, and the film in interviews. He he loves it too. Yeah. And it's it's made with with that affection in mind. Yeah. Um, because I, I think part of it, and, and this is something I felt before the Disaster Artist and before I knew that that film was getting made as yeah. well. But it's I do have some minor concerns about how okay Wizzo is with all of this. Because this is, for him, this is like a passion project that, you know, he poured his heart and soul into. But however terrible it is, and I, I think we can all agree it's, it's really bad, but it's, it clearly meant a lot to him. And, you know, not just financially cost him a lot, but like, I think emotionally. Yeah, like it's, yeah. it's him putting himself out there on screen and trying mm. to put himself out there in terms of he, what he hoped was making a career yeah. for himself in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, he does... Um, for, for all the fact that he attends the screenings and gives lots of interviews and says how happy he is that people enjoy it, whatever they're getting out of it, yeah. I don't entirely believe him at face value. Um, I think there's a lot of hints that actually there's at least part of him that is quite upset and frustrated, yeah. maybe even angry, that um, mm, legacy yeah. is one of failure um, and not success. Yeah, I mean, you can see there's an element here as well of trying to control the situation in the, like the stuff that James Franco talks about how, you know, the 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 the, cue, the, like the clues and cues that actually he clearly was making this as a serious film, and then as soon as it re was received in a particular way, he sort of shifts his stance to the film and says, oh yeah, it's a black comedy, you know, and and there's an element there I think of trying to control the situation and that I intended it this way all along. Um, and, and I think you do have to be careful. Like I said, there's a, there's a line between you. Know, you can laugh at the film, um, but just be, being careful about laughing at Wizzo, I think that's maybe... Well, you know, it's cruel, isn't it? It's bullying, you know. If, you, if you're not careful, you can cross that line. And just because he might seem a bit odd in his behaviours doesn't mean he deserves to be bullied. Yeah, and I, th I think... I think the film is actually very clear about that from yes. the start. It, it, from, from the opening scene, it's very clear that, yes, this man is very eccentric and unusual, yeah. but he's, he is in a kind of infectious way. Yeah. Like, the, the, the fact that he's, well, why can't we make a movie? Or let's just do it. He has Absolutely. this kind of can-do attitude, which yeah. is really... You know, I think anyone can get on board with that, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, but also, I think, in relation to thinking about the idea of cults, films, and so bad it's good yeah. here in general, yeah. it's very easy to assume that that, kind of um, attachment to media is kind of hierarchical, I guess, like that yep. people are elevating themselves above the text, that people think, I'm laughing at this because I'm better than this. Mm. And, I, and although I don't, I don't think that's entirely inaccurate, I think that there's a lot more to it. Yeah, it's, it's much more complex, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's possible to be, to say that something is not very good, but also not be punching it and, and putting it yeah. down. Yeah, absolutely. I think poking fun. It's more like, um, I, I don't know if you've, um, Ingalisa Bohr has recently done a really good book on um, screen, 
screen comedy audiences. Yeah. And she talks about um, Wizzo in the room and his sitcom that he made, uh, Neighbours, as well. Yes. And she, she compares it to, to banter, that, you know, people might, like, very close friends might insult each other. Yeah. Um, but it's not, and outward, to, to outwardly that might look like they're being really horrible to each other, but actually, it's, no, it's, it's, it's the perfection. perfection. They, they kind yeah. of have a shared understanding there. Yeah. There's, a, there's, a, there's a dialogue, it's just a different sort of dialogue. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess it's a little bit of a one-sided dialogue in this case because obviously the film can't talk mm. back the audiences, can't banter back with the audiences, kind of criticise them. But I, but I think it's it's done in the same spirit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think as well, um, the, the the message I very strongly got from uh, the disaster artist was this idea of well, it might not have been a commercial success, um, you know, and it might not have been a critical success, but this is a success in that. It got made, and so many people don't manage that. And actually, you know, if you this is just about a different kind of success, actually. And it's just, and, and I found the film very celebratory. Uh, I thought that Franco's depiction was really, really good, really interesting, doing some really interesting things. You know, there are scenes where that are, you know, where Wizzo doesn't come off well. Um, the the whole sort of Hitchcock scene, um, but. You know, I thought it was still an interesting film and I thought, you know, you could really feel for him in the film and, you know, I, I thought that was great. You know, I, I really liked it. And, I, and I'm quite pleased with the way as well that... <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. That um, the way in which Franco's promoted this film in quite a... in really quite a positive light. He's not shied away from the fact that, you know, Wizzo can be problematic in all sorts of ways, but he's still an interesting subject and he's worthy of consideration. Um, you know, that I, I found really interesting. The, at the same time, I think Wizzo is, um, I, I don't know if you're aware, but like, um, Wizzo has actually been involved in quite a lot of um, verbal and some, in some cases legal disputes uh, with, with other people over this film. He's, he's, there's, a, there's a documentary that's been there made is, room, yeah. room Full of Stones, yeah, um, yeah. which he has uh, successfully for a long time um, held up an, an injunction against them. Yes. So he basically said that um, any festival that agrees to film to screen this documentary, he, they will not be able to show the room and, and you know, they yeah. will be subject to all sorts of like legal disputes yeah. and things like that. Um, so he has, it, for all this kind of like, oh, I'm just happy people are enjoying this film and how yeah. they're enjoying it, yeah. I, I really do get a sense that actually he's quite annoyed that yeah. there are some some people who he deems to be enjoying it in the wrong way or yeah yeah it's back or, or and we're back to control again you know that whole you know authorial control yeah yeah the really odd video that he's made i don't know if you've seen this it's, it's mm. called um shame on you uh and he's basically made this like in response seemingly in response to people who have said the room doesn't have a script presumably people who say that don't mean it literally and he's made this video going some people have said the room doesn't have a script but shame on you, here it is, and there's all this, all these, like, behind-the-scenes footage of people making the film and people reading the script and stuff, so it's like, oh, there, right. it is. there it is, shame on you, you're an idiot, you're wrong. And it's like, why have you, I, I don't, I don't really know what he's trying to do with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there does seem to be this attempt to kind of control the narrative around it. Absolutely. To some extent, he's relinquished, he's, he's, he's given up on, um, calling it a black comedy as much as he used to when when this um when it first became a cult hit but yeah it's it's problematic in some ways i, th I think but i think in, in some ways to, to return to the disaster artist although i was really pleased that it was affectionate i 
think perhaps it maybe went a little bit too far in being deferential. And the, the book um, that it's based on, uh, the same name, that I think is a more interesting uh, reflection on the making of the film in that it, it showcases Wiseau's bad side as well. It, it makes it very, very clear that Greg Sestero was very clearly pissed off with Wiseau at lots of points. Yeah. Uh, Wiseau was <laughs> yeah. not a pleasant man to work with and yeah. that he, you know, was really disruptive on set, um, both to individuals and to, you know, the, the cast and crew as a yeah. whole. Um, and I think, for me, the thing that would have made the disaster artist go from being, a, I think, pretty much has had four-star reviews across the board. I yeah. think the thing that make it perhaps be a five-star film would be if it was a little bit more ambiguous about there was a character a bit more complex in its representation of him as not just being good or bad. He's mm. it's okay for him to be both of those things. I think that's the thing that I that I wanted, which it didn't give right. me. But, uh, but but for the most part, I was I was really pleased with yeah. it. One of the things that really interested me about about this film um, and the idea of exclusivity mm. is that it forces us to kind of re rethink what we mean by exclusivity. Yes, because um, it's very it's very easy to think that cult audiences. Um, are very protective over their cult of their fan objects yeah. and things. And they, you know, this is ours, and it's not for those people over there and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but and I think to some extent that is the case. Um, you know, because after all, communities. We, we talked before about this idea of community being really important, and and a community mm. doesn't really mean anything unless it has some boundaries to it. Yeah. Uh, in, in some form, at least. Mm. But I think um, I think that that word exclusivity is sometimes thought about in slightly simplistic terms in relation to yeah. objects, um, because there's lots of different ways in which something can be exclusive or obscure. Yeah. Uh, so we could be talking about the object itself. Um, so a film, for example, might be very obscure. Might not, some people might not. Lots of people might not know it even exists. Yeah. Which. In, makes it sort of almost seem intrinsically valuable because no one else has heard of this. Thing, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, makes you feel, you know, like you're in the know, in you know that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but even quite a well-known object can be seen as exclusive in terms of its reception. Mm. Um, so, you know, think of queer spectatorship and yeah. subtext and all this kind of stuff. There's a very long history of of gay audiences, kind of reading films and popular culture more generally in a way which, you know, even if everyone else has seen that film or read that book or whatever, mm. we we over here understand it in a very different way, yes. a special way, which is yes. just about ours. Um, I think to some extent the release of The Disaster Artist is opening up both the film of The Room and mm. its so bad it's goodness to uh, <laughs> yes. mainstream audience. But at the same time, I think because it is I'm very loath to say that something is objectively good or bad. Well, it's subjective, isn't it? You know. But, but the room is probably about as close we can as it <laughs> any kind of any kind of measure, right? Um, I think there will always be people who who like you kind of talked about in relation to your own first reaction mm. to the film. There is always going to be people who cannot sit through that film because it's so crap. <laughs> Or, or even the fact that the sex, there's, there's quite a lot of sex in it, and it's horrible sex as well. And that instantly is going to put a lot of people yeah. off. And even for when, you know, let's say there are what, 
you know, mainstream audiences who, who understand that the room is bad and they can reel off a list of all the, you know, the fact that he's having sex with her belly button and not her vagina. And yeah. Um, there is so much in this film that is quote-unquote bad. So many things to spot, so many weird things to think about, talk about, so much that isn't even in the film itself, which is, you know, about Wizzo and the making of the yes. film to kind of know and discover. Yeah. I think there's always going to be layers of exclusiveness and mm. distinction yeah. that audiences can draw with this film, even if it actually, you know, eventually becomes something that every, you know, maybe one day it'll be as famous as Rocky Horror. Yeah. But, but I think even if that is the case, there will still be some audiences who know the film much better than others and will still feel, you know, like they have a better grasp of it, they understand yeah. it better, they take more pleasure from it than yeah. other audiences do, which I think is really important. Yeah. And I think just, I guess, one kind of final point to relate to some of some other work that I've done as well, yeah. um, which which is something that was mentioned before, but the idea that, that cult reception is, or can be, to some extent, prefabricated. That there are some films or some film events that are increasingly being designed with that sort of interactive, participatory cult fandom in mind. Yeah. So um, a good example, uh, Kristen Stevens has, has written an article um, on Snakes on a Plane. She calls a prefabricated cult film and because it, you know, it, anyone who's seen Snakes on a Plane, it's, it's ludicrous. Yeah. It's daft and it's silly and it's, it's but in quite an enjoyable sort of way. He's sort of quite self-aware, but sort of also at, at sometimes not very self-aware. And we could think of more recent examples like the Sharknado film, which are films which seem to be designed yeah. with a very ironic appreciation mm. in mind. And in terms of the kinds of audiences and events that I've done some research into, there's a growing trend towards sing-along and quote-along and participatory events. Um, I, I went to a sing-along of Showgirls. Oh, wow, 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 well, no. <laughs> God, no. Not sing along, but like a quote along. And, and it was amazing. Uh, but, but, but again, there we have a similar kind of problematic element where, you know, the, the, the ironic reading of Showgirls, which I'm right on board with, by the way, um, that was very particularly associated with gay audiences. And, and that has then been, I don't know, sanitized to some extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Extreme in some ways. Uh, you know, there's. We could talk about the Eurovision Song Contest, which has a long history of, you know, attracting gay audiences. Mm. And now that sort of ironic uh, camp reading of, of Eurovision is, you know, all over Twitter whenever you watch that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can attend. I, I've, I've recently been doing some research on another event that runs at the Prince Charles Cinema, um, which is Sing Along of Frozen, which is obviously a very, very, it's the opposite of a cult film. In terms yeah, of how yeah. It is and how popular it is. And you go along to that and you have half an hour where someone sits you down and they go, when this happens, you, you do that. Yeah. This song comes on. This is the dance that you do. Yeah. You get, you get given a goodie bag on the way in. Yeah. With props to use. So a little bit like the, the room screenings that you kind of describe. Like yeah. What you do, your screening. Your yeah. Screenings, but like a heightened and very commercialized version of that. Yeah. Where it's kind of like you don't. You no longer don't need to have that kind of cult expertise. You, yeah. can, buy, you can buy it. It's, it's there for sale. So it's been commodified to some extent, which, which I do have some issues with. Can I ask, who is the audience? Because I've been to a sing-along of Frozen as well. Um, 
And I was just wondering, who is the audience? Who was the audience at the one that you went to? What, what... Uh, parents and young children. I felt really out of place. This was before I, I had a child myself. So, so I kind of sat there in, a, in an audience, like just on my. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what, what am I doing here? Yeah. A film that I didn't even know particularly well. I'd not seen it before. And my, my overriding impression of it, I thought, this is going to be the best Frozen experience. Why would I watch it any other way? I'll watch it with 250 other five year olds. Yay! You know, it'll be great. And the noise. And I kind of enjoyed it, but I kind of had a massive headache at the end as well. It sounds like the audiences you were, you were watching it with were a bit more raucous than the ones that I watched with. But at the same time, I think it's interesting that what they're doing there is basically not... What, what I observed in the screens that mm. I went to was that people weren't really following the instructions. So even though there was this whole... It was literally about... It might have been half an hour. It was at least 20 minutes of explaining what you do and when. And after about five minutes, basically everyone had given up on that and you were doing whatever the hell yeah. they wanted. Um, so, so to some extent, you're kind of you can you can kind of I don't know the, the, the sort of uh, the, the Marxist scholar in <laughs> like, oh God, what is this happening? It's taken all these kind of you know organic sort of uh, you know subcultural practices and repackaging them and selling them back to audiences. Yeah. But actually, the audiences aren't really doing that. And no. Just, not, not quite rejecting it, but just they're just not asked. No, no. I mean, it was basically, there were just loads of little girls at the very front of the auditorium, right in front of the screen, just acting out, the, you know, in that sort of Rocky Horror Picture Show sort of a way, acting out the what's going on on the screen. Um, and I will say, as they sang Let It Go, actually, there's nothing more moving than watching a room full of 250 little girls sing that anthem. I, I, it made me cry, which is really pathetic, I know, but, it, you know, and they were all dressed up in their little costumes, and their mums were there as well, and loads of their mums sang along with them, and it was just, as a bonding experience, actually, it, it was it was almost all girls. There were, there were virtually no boys there at all. But as a bonding experience for those for want of a better word, young women with their mothers. And, you know, it was a really, really moving thing to watch, actually. I really enjoyed that element of it. I will just say then, um, is there any anything you wanted to plug, any work that you are doing at the moment that's due to come out soon? Uh, anything that you have done fairly recently you think people might be interested in? Have they been interested in, in this chat? Um, I think if if they have, uh, there's, I guess there's two articles that I've published in the past, not not especially recent ones, but mm. so there's the one that I wrote on the room, uh, which is called uh, "Most People Bring Their Own Spoons," and the room's participatory audiences as comedy mediators. Um, that was in 2011. That was published. That's in the journal Participations, which is open access online, um, and in the same journal uh, published last year, I think 2016 it was, yeah, a year and a bit ago, uh, another one on. The Prince Charles and participatory screenings, but mm. taking a slightly different approach. Um, it's called uh, Watch Like a Grown-Up, Enjoy Like a Child, um, Exhibition, Authenticity and Film Audiences at the Prince Charles Cinema. Um, and in that one, that was one where, where we specifically set out to find out, well, not just the room, but this, this space that is known for hosting lots of participatory screenings. Yeah. We thought, well, let's, let's do a kind of study of that space and that cinema, mm. why people go to that cinema and what they get out of it. And, um, and we were really surprised, actually. We were, we were hoping to find loads of stuff about, you know, why people go to all these sing-along screenings and quote yeah. and stuff like that. And the majority of people that came back to us were like, I bloody hate sing-along. <laughs> you know, to go yeah. and stand with a group of adults and, and, you know, watch a cartoon and sing about it. That's embarrassing. And a lot of people wanted to just sit in silence and watch a good film yeah. on a big screen. 
um, <laughs> with like-minded people, but not talk to them. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time, Richard. I've really enjoyed our conversation. So there we are. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Richard's articles can be found on the Participations website and are entitled Most People Bring Their Own Spoons, The Room's Participatory Audiences as Comedy Mediators and Watch Like a Grown-Up, Enjoy Like a Child, Exhibition, Authenticity and Film Audiences at the Prince Charles Cinema. And he's also written a short blog for the Huffington Post entitled Wizzo Serious, How Audiences Transform the Room from a Romantic Drama into an Unintentional Comedy Sensation. And I'll supply a link for that on the Here's Looking at You website. So all that remains is for me to say thanks to John Ashbrook of Radio Pictures for his tech input, to Richard for agreeing to chat and for being such engaging conversation, to the Shannon Riley trio for allowing me the use of their song Trouble as the Here's Looking at You intro music, and to you for listening to the podcast. Feel free to offer your opinions on this conversation or suggestions for potential interviewees on Twitter at Dr Smut or on the Here's Looking at You website where you can also sign yourself up to be updated when the latest podcast drops. I'll be back in a few weeks for another conversation about the intersection of gender, sexuality and performance. So until next time, here's looking at you.